Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Horses can be found in many corners of the national park system. They can be spotted running wild at Theodore Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota, splashing in the surf at Cape Lookout National Seashore in North Carolina and at Assateague Island National Seashore in Maryland and Virginia, and of course as pack animals in tireless steeds that carry both rangers and visitors into the parks. But wild horses are somewhat of a conundrum in the national park system. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. They're a conundrum because they technically are not wild, but rather feral, meaning that they've descended from domesticated horses. As such, they technically are not native wildlife, and that has become an issue in some parts of the park system. At Theodore Roosevelt National Park, the National Park Service has raised the question of whether the horses there are livestock, not native wildlife, and therefore should be removed from the park. A recent comment period on that proposal drew more than 7,000 comments, just 45 of which supported removal of the horses. Where the Park Service will come down on horses at Theodore Roosevelt remains to be seen. Across the country, at Cumberland Island National Seashore along the coast of Georgia, there also are feral horses, and their plight has surfaced in the form of a lawsuit that claims that the animals not only are damaging the seashore's environment and two federally protected species there, but also are not being humanely managed by the National Park Service and should be removed from the seashore. We're going to explore that issue today with Hal Wright, the attorney who brought the lawsuit on behalf of Horses of Cumberland Island, the Georgia Equine Rescue League, the Georgia Horse Council, and two individuals, along with Patty Livingston, president of both the Georgia Equine Rescue League and the Georgia Horse Council, and Jessica Howell Edwards, the executive director of Wild Cumberland, a nonprofit organization that advocates on behalf of the National Seashore. We'll be back in a minute to learn more about the horses of Cumberland Island. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Patero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to patrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Okay, welcome to The Traveler, Hal, Patty, and Jessica. It's great to have you here today. Good morning. Thank you. Thanks so much. Now, before we jump into the issue of the National Seashore's horses, let's get acquainted a bit with Cumberland Island National Seashore. Jessica, can you give our listeners a lay of the land of Cumberland Island? Absolutely. 
Cumberland Island is a barrier island located in the furthest possible southeast corner of Georgia, and it's accessible only by passenger ferry. It has about 18 miles of mature, undeveloped shoreline, prime nesting habitat for sea turtles, especially loggerheads. It contains one of our nation's largest remaining maritime forests, so these majestic live oaks twisted and bent from the forces of the Atlantic Ocean, and they're draped in Spanish moss, just thousands of acres of incredible salt marshes. In fact, there's around 350 species of birds that have been recorded there, including red knots, piping plovers, oyster catchers, and wood storks. The waters adjacent to Cumberland Island are known for their calving grounds for the North Atlantic right whale certainly an animal that's receiving a lot of attention right now as one of our most endangered marine mammals. Um, Manatees are frequently spotted by visitors. It was established as a national seashore in 1972. There are only what, you know, maybe 10 of those and they all have different legislative requirements. Uh But Cumberland was established primarily for recreational use. It was the first park unit to actually implement visitor carrying capacity and has minimal infrastructure. So, Ten years later, in 1982, an additional layer of protection was added when more than 20,000 acres of this 36,000-acre island was designated as wilderness and potential wilderness. And I think in that move, Congress made it clear that the wilderness character of Cumberland and ultimately its ecological value were designed to increase over time to the American public. Now, you also have a, a fairly long human history there at Cumberland Island, too, no? Yes, it it certainly has a history of agricultural and colonial influence um, and and industrial influence that that has uh, left several historic properties there that visitors uh, travel far to see. And and that human existence um, is responsible for bringing the horses to Cumberland Island now? Yes, they they are the reason we are having this discussion today. (laughs) The horses on Cumberland Island um, were previously uh, livestock that was released to roam freely on the island. Cumberland Island also had feral cattle at the time it was designated as a national seashore that roamed freely and grazed um, through the forest and and the beach dunes. Those cattle were removed. They were rounded up and removed in, I think, the, the 80s. But the horses remain. Yeah, kind of interesting. Interesting decision there to remove one but not the other, and that kind of goes back to what I said earlier about uh, horses are a conundrum for the National Park Service. How you've been involved since 1993 in issues revolving around the National Seashore and feral hogs, sea turtles, beach driving, wilderness protection, and more, no? Oh, correct. Are you a native to, to Georgia and Cumberland? Oh, no, not the Cumberland Island. I, I mean, uh, but to Georgia, yes. I mean, I've, I've grown up here, uh, frequented uh, many of the uh, Georgia's barrier islands, which there are many, and was late to Cumberland Island. I mean, I think uh, in 93 was my actually first visit to Cumberland Island. But, um, but ever since then, I've been uh, actively uh, involved with many of the issues there. Have you been involved with the the spaceport issue that uh, also has been in the news in recent uh, months? No, no, no. I've uh, I've stayed away from that one. That's an interesting one. Um, yeah, sure, it certainly is. What is it? What is it about national parks that 
spur so much litigation. I mean, we expect the National Park Service to always be working in the best interests of the parks, their wildlife, their natural resources, and yet they always seem to attract litigation. Well, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I'm not so certain uh, that all the national parks attract that as much litigation. I think Cumberland in particular has been a hotbed of litigation primarily uh, because of some of the uh, conflicting uh, initial enabling legislation that created Cumberland. And then also, I think there remains uh, property owners on Cumberland Island that make uh, management of the island more difficult than it probably needs to be. And the Park Service overall, I think, has a a difficult challenge in managing uh, not only Cumberland Island, but the, but the national park system uh, in general. Uh, and I think the, the, the feral uh, horse issue, whether it be uh, on Cumberland Island or out west, is probably very indicative of, of that challenge. Yeah, it's it's a curious curious question. Um, the, the horse one, in that you know, obviously across the park system, there are different philosophies, I guess, on on how to deal with horses. And you know, the Theodore Roosevelt situation is, is just one of the most recent ones. I mean, you can even um, go to a cousin of the horses, the burros and the wild mules, in Death Valley National Park. You know, they've been trying for decades to remove all the, the feral burrows that uh, prospectors left there. And the same is ongoing at uh, Grand Canyon National Park. But certainly, you know, the Park Service is in a tough position because while the Organic Act directs the Park Service to, to preserve the natural resources in as pristine condition as possible for future generations, in today's world there are so many political interests and, and um, vocal interests on what people believe should be allowed or permitted in the national parks. And so I, I don't envy the park service for the, the management chores it ha- it has to deal with. Patty, well, you're, yeah, you're, and I I'm think, sorry. well, I'm sorry. Excuse no, me. go ahead, Hal. Go yeah, ahead. I think, I think, uh, Kurt, I think, it, I mean, you put, I think you put your finger really right on, right on the problem, which is um, there is, there's a, a dynamic that's ongoing within the park system and uh, that's reflected in the in the country at large that that's really sort of founded in this whole persist really a perception problem uh, as to what the overall uh, charge of the park service is uh, as far as not sort of impairing uh, the the overall natural and wildlife resources of the park system in effect to leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of present and future generations. And sort of opposed to that, this overall uh, impression of the public at large that there are these other interests that should be served by the Park Service that are more uh, sort of tourist related and that the Park Service has this obligation to serve the public at large and uh, allowing them to be almost have an entertainment value uh, to be served by the park service. And I think the park service becomes uh, sort of whipsawed in that, in, in, in those, 
in those two dynamics, which is to serve uh, the public's tourism or entertainment value on the one hand, and then on the other to safeguard uh, the, the park's resources, which they really are sort of the public trustee for. Uh, and I think the horse issue uh, sort of epitomizes that, that dynamic and that, that conflict that the Park Service faces. Um, and to the degree that we live in a, in a time that there's a lot of misinformation concerning natural resources and natural resource use, I think uh, this whole issue of uh, quote unquote wild horses uh, is really uh, subject to, uh, to being misrepresented, if you will. Uh, and I, I think one of the values of, of the lawsuit at Cumberland and uh, the efforts by Park Service uh, at Theodore Roosevelt is to help uh, educate um, the public uh, at large, I guess, as to really what the issues are involving these, uh, these horses. No, and absolutely. And, it, and it's a tough question um, because, you know, let's go back to the question of whether horses are livestock or feral animals, or after several hundred years, are natives and an integral part of the faunal assemblage of a, a unit of the national park system. I mean, how do you how do you parse that? Well, I mean, I think they could be. I think they can be. Well, they can be livestock. I mean, they can be livestock and feral. I mean, I I, I don't think those are. I don't think those are uh, mutually exclusive. I think they can be. Obviously, they could be both. I mean, they could be. Obviously, a, a, a live, uh, an animal that uh, was formerly livestock can be a feral animal. And I think the real issue is whether they're native animals or non-native animals. And I think the, the, my understanding of the science is that there, no horse is a, is a native animal to North America. Uh, and as far as Cumberland's concerned, um, they're, they're obviously not native uh, to Barrier Island. So, um, and I think um, the, the issue as far as Cumberland's concerned is that, you know, the, placing a horse on a Barrier Island is, is just uh, a situation that's completely inhumane for a horse. And I, I guess Patty can talk to the, to the issue as to probably under no circumstances, regardless of the amount of uh, food, water, and vet care, uh, can uh, a horse's living conditions, if you will, be made uh, or be brought up to a level that uh, would justify keeping a horse on a barrier island? Um, I mean, I think that one of the intentions of, of what we're trying to do on Cumberland is to work uh, together with uh, experts and people like Patty and the Park Service and the state uh, to work towards a solution uh, that uh, not only improves the horse's living conditions on the island, but uh, long-term basically uh, transitions them off of the island uh, and removes them from really a, a very hostile uh, living environment. So. We're talking today about uh, the horses at Cumberland Island National Seashore and whether they should remain there and what their condition is like. And uh, we'll be back in a minute to further explore that question. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. 
If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Okay, we're back. Patty Livingston, you are the president of both the Georgia Equine Rescue League and the Georgia Horse Council, and you're a party in the lawsuit along with the horses. The actual horses are, are the lead plaintiffs in the lawsuit. What's the end goal of the legal action? Do you want the horses permanently removed from Cumberland Island or, or simply better cared for? Um, actually, I would like to see them removed. I, you know what? Given a choice, a horse would not elect to live on a barrier island. I'm sorry, but that's just not where they would choose to live. They are uh, grazing animals. They like plains. They like nice green grassy pastures. And that's not the type of um, forage that you find uh, on the barrier islands. So um, had they not been brought there by human beings, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be there today. So, um, no, no horse would electively go to a barrier island to live. Um, it's not like uh, it is for people that it's a, a, a treat. It's a, um, um, it's a prize. It's not for a horse. To me, it's a doomsday um, for them. Who would want to live there if, knowing that you can only live a third of your life? Yeah. Now, now, some would say, though, that, I mean, they've been there since the 1700s, so obviously they've managed to survive there. And then there's there's others who point to the the cultural aspect, I guess, of um, horses are part of our world today and, and that uh, they're, they're nice to be around and nice to see in wild settings. They are, but do they have to, uh, at the cost of their lives, um, do they, uh, does every barrier island have to have a herd of horses just to please um, boiled people? I don't think that they should have to pay for the pleasure of um, people just seeing uh, horses run on the beach. I'm sorry, but I'm a horse person. I'm about the horse. Horses are livestock in um, my world. There are laws surrounding horses as livestock. Uh, they're treated as livestock, except that when a, a human being wants to interfere and choose to call them by another name, they mm-hmm. are livestock. And their lives, there are laws are about livestock. 
they can see that for a cow, but they don't see that for a horse. And maybe the reason really is because they don't want to. They like to see pretty horses running on the beach. They're not exactly. thinking about what they're going to eat that night, actually. Yeah. I'm wondering, have you run into any pushback? Uh, and I, I raise that question because at at Theodore Roosevelt, um, the, the Park Service has taken a lot of heat for just raising the question of whether horses should remain in the national park there. And there have been uh, um, petition drives. There have been uh, YouTube videos put out to support keeping horses in Theodore Roosevelt. People have said, if you take horses out of Theodore Roosevelt, we're not going to come visit the park, which I find that somewhat laughable. But I'm just curious, you know, has your organizations run into any um, pushback? Um, actually, I'll tell you what, because I do um, travel in the world of uh, horse people, I have gotten nothing but accolades and praise from horse people. Horse people get it. They can look at these horses and see they are not healthy. Um, our horses uh, on, on, uh, on normal people, my friends, my horses, they live to be in their 30s. These horses are living to be 9 or 10. Why would that be a good thing for any animal? Yeah. Just yeah. To, for the pure pleasure of, um, of a human being to see something that they don't even know anything about. It's just, it's like a, um, a you know, this facade of a horse running on the beach. You know, horses aren't going to choose to be on the beach and they shouldn't be there in my opinion. Um, I went to the island last year and, um, on the ferry ride there and on the ferry ride back, I um, asked some people who were there about the horses and were they there to see the horses. And um, none of the people that I asked, and I'll say maybe six or uh, six to seven people I asked, not one single person was there to see the horses. They were there to hike, camp, bike. And in fact, um, there was an older couple on the ferry who had bicycles and they were very annoyed because they went to Dungeness ruins and had lunch and two stallions got in a fight nearby and it frightened them. And, um, they picked up their stuff to leave because it was just too close to where, you know, they didn't feel safe. Hmm. Um, so not everybody is there to see a horse. Yeah, yeah, Jessica. Um, I don't believe your organization is a party in the lawsuit, but does Wild Cumberland come down on this issue one way or the other? Yes, we certainly have a position. Um, we are not a plaintiff in this suit. Uh, we're a small but mighty grassroots volunteer organization, and it's it's unfortunately the feral horses aren't the only issue that we're facing at this time. But you know, I want to say this is a complex issue that deserves to be handled with both common sense and compassion. And I think that we believe, you know, good stewardship would require us to show compassion to these animals that are suffering. But it also, good stewardship would require us to demonstrate respect for the ecosystems that they're damaging. And, you know, I think many of us would agree that <laughs> it's perhaps more important now than ever before as we face sort of the unprecedented changes that we're facing, uh, particularly on our, our coastlines. So we do support the removal of the horses and 
we support that both for the well-being of the animals and the well-being of the ecosystems. We certainly understand that uh, the romanticized no notion of these horses um, is a draw for a large number of visitors at the seashore or has been historically. Um, I can tell you personally, I, you know, I was a teenager the first time I visited the seashore in the 90s myself. And the first few visits uh, I took to the seashore, I was photographing the horses and I thought they were amazing and beautiful running wild and free on the beach. But the more frequently I returned and was able to see the conditions of the horses, the conditions uh, that they were putting these ecosystems under, uh, it, it wasn't so glamorous anymore. And I think often when visitors uh, go to a place like Cumberland Island, it's a bucket item uh, place. It's somewhere you go once, you check off your list and you're, you're ready for another adventure. And I think there are um, fewer visitors who come and go on a regular basis and have had the opportunity to see the damage to the ecosystem that these animals cause and see the suffering that they endure on the island. You know, um, unfortunately, the National Park Service declined our invitation to be part of this conversation, and that's not terribly surprising as the matter has gone to litigation. But in an email to the traveler back in April, um, Cumberland Island Seashore Superintendent Gary Ingram maintained that the horses were not suffering. Um, in that email, he told me that, quote, the National Park Service has monitored the horses on Cumberland Island National Seashore annually with population census techniques since 1981. Condition ratings for observed animals have been predominantly in the good to moderate categories. At no time during the last 41 plus years have there been findings indicating that the overall health of the herd was in extremely poor condition, unquote. Now, against that statement is a 2018 report from the National Park Service that said the 150 or so horses on Cumberland Island are having harmful impacts on the national seashore's ecosystems. What can you tell us about those impacts? You know, and, and how, how maybe better equipped to answer this question than I, but I can tell you again, if we just sort of apply common sense and compassion to this issue and we observe, you know, a layperson can observe that these animals have grazed you know, protected uh, marsh grasses down to nubs uh, in areas. We can watch them and observe them um, eating the the uh, the sea oats that stabilize this mature dune system on Cumberland Island. Um, hikers are required to uh, circumvent enormous piles of waste that the bugs cannot recycle off quickly enough on the island. There are very obvious impacts that are that should be recognizable to most of us who understand the the impacts that cows horses grazing livestock can have on an area if they're allowed to roam freely um there have been a number to your point of of uh, studies and and research pieces done that document the data or that have the data and document the damage they've done to the resource. Um, I've personally, you know, discovered horses that have uh, passed away, you know, in my adventures in on the seashore. So, you know, I have seen mares that are pregnant and feeding a foal, and I have seen 
young horses that have been left without a band because they are so competing for resources um, on, on this place. But I, I am certainly not a scientist. I can only speak to the observations that I've made and the, the data that I've read. But I think it's important to note that the seashore no longer uh, completes that annual census. They stopped that several years ago, perhaps um, because they think that this herd is is of a self-sustaining size and and they did not think it was worth monitoring anymore, but they haven't completed that in a number of years. How, Patty, anything to add to that? I, I, would, I would just add or reflect, I guess, uh, that back when the feral hogs were depredating over close to 80% of the sea turtle nests on Cumberland Island, the Park Service uh, took a position that they basically threw their hands up and said, well, you know, it, what do you want us to do about it? And it's sort of natural and very similar position of, of the, what they're taking now with the, with the feral horses. Uh, and it required a legal action to sort of get them moving. And, and the only reason I bring that up is that I'm not surprised at the Park Service's position that, well, the because the herd basically has not died off, I'm not really sure what they expect the herd to do, but th that it's, you know, that it's because it's not in poor condition, whatever that means, that uh, everything is okay, that they're not going to do anything. I don't think that that's a justification for them to continue not to do anything. And I guess it really brings up, I, I guess what really what summarizes it for me, and, I, and I, I usually don't like to quote people, but I think it's a, it's a good contextual quote, which is from uh, Aldo Leopold, which I think everybody respects as a, as a great sort of a, a ecologists or probably one of the early ecologists. And he said, you know, a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. And uh, I think so it is with feral horses. They're just, they're just, they just don't belong. And they just, uh, and, and it's not, it, horses are beautiful. I think everybody on this call loves horses for the for horses themselves, and that's really why I think that's why we're here. But they just don't belong. Uh, they just don't belong on the seashore, and and I think that's what we're, our hope is is that we can work cooperatively uh, with the Park Service, uh, you know, to find a solution, uh, you know, for the issue here, and um, and 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 really cut to the chase and quit pretending that that number one that the horses are somehow uh happy and are, are thriving on the island and then number two that that they're, they're not harming the, the island that you know that's just that's just not the case so um hopefully we can uh we can you know direct our our energies and and resources to to you know correct the problem now, part of the lawsuit also claims that the uh, 
existence of the, the horses on the island um, is a violation of the Endangered Species Act in that the, the horses are having um, negative impacts on critical habitat of the loggerhead sea turtle, an endangered species under the act, as well as uh, critical habitat for the piping plover uh, and other protected species. Are, are those seen as big impacts? Well, I mean, I think any imp- I think any impact is uh, is a significant impact, um, and I uh, I think to the degree that critical habitat uh, is diminished, you know, it's it's significant and needs to be addressed. So, you know, I think I think I, I mean I think the complaint speaks for itself as far as uh, as far as that's concerned. Well, have there been any actual? Um examples of, of the horses trampling hatchlings, sea turtle hatchlings or eggs or piping plover nests? Uh, there actually, ha- well, the, the piping plover doesn't nest there, um, but uh, as far as the trampling of uh, sea turtle nests and hatchlings, there has been, uh, there has been examples of that. So, but I think from a larger, you know, from a, from the, a larger context, it really has to do with uh, their impacts. Well, as far as the, uh, Sea turtles uh, impacts on uh, stabilization of the dunes uh, or the destabilization of the dunes uh, and the dune uh, vegetation. And as far as the piping plovers, I think the, the primary uh, uh, concern uh, is uh, the uh, harassment or, or disturbance uh, of piping plovers. Uh, when they're feeding and resting, which they did, you know, really in a large uh, period of their time that they spend on Cumberland, um, which, uh, frankly, I didn't really realize that they spend a very, very large part of their uh, of their lives uh, during part of the year on Cumberland Island, uh, feeding and, and resting and all before they go back up up north to their uh, to their nesting habitat. Yeah, I think we're, as time goes by, we're learning more and more about the the different needs of species such as the piping plover. Um, There was a story out of Cape Hatteras National Seashore a few years ago where they discovered um, this area that had been uh, overwashed um, during a hurricane and it just created impeccable habitat for the plovers and they were using it as a migratory stopover to, to rest and feed and whatnot. Okay, we're talking today about Cumberland Island and the wild horses that live there. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Do you work or volunteer for the National Park Service? Are you retired from the Department of the Interior? Learn how you could earn $250 by joining Interior Federal Credit Union and opening up a new credit card. Visit their website for membership details and how to join. Federally insured by NCUA. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, 
and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Patty, I'm, I'm curious, if the Park Service said, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll move the horses, where, where do you put them? Well, I didn't want to move all the horses. It wasn't our, um, you know, we've done a lot of research on this, and we've looked at a lot of management plans. And um, basically, um, the only horses that we wanted to physically remove from the island were the babies. We didn't want to touch stallions. We were actually um, talking about a... Um, birth control for the mares don't touch the stallions don't remove the stallions let them just die out um their natural life so um you know we're looking at a eight to ten year um plan where they would live their lives out uh, what's left of it and um the babies would have an, maybe an opportunity for a, a good life um on shore so that's kind of what we had put together as, as um, far as my committee and all the research that we've been doing. But let me just say this. This is a situation of um, on that island of survival of the fittest. And uh-huh. I just don't think that um, that is suitable for a national park uh, to have living conditions that really are just about that. It's, it is survival of the fittest there. And um, so I just don't think that that's where they need to be, but um, they have been there for some time. I think that the ones that are there need to be die there and then the rest of them, you know, not to continue breeding them. So um, birth control for the mares and an opportunity to remove babies and adopt them out. So that's our tentative plan, um, not to say that uh, the National Park Service would adopt our plan and we would hope that they would uh, i'm hoping that uh, they would even let us work with them but um anyway it's not a good situation for them to be there and um getting them off the island one you know even if we're not actually removing them we just let them live out their life yeah. as it is yeah how, how many young a year how many how many foals are there a year roughly I'm not sure. Um, that's one of those things that we're hoping to, that we could get some information from the folks on the island, maybe through a camera, put up a you know a camera somewhere so that we have an idea. The very first thing that needs to be done, Kurt, is they need to be tested to make sure that they are and not carrying disease. Nobody would be removed from the island if that were the case. So that would you know certainly have to be. Um, the first thing to to find out is the health of the herd. It seems to me that that implementing birth control as as a means to manage this population would cause minimal disruption, right? To allow these bands to sort of slowly adjust over time to a reduction in the the number of horses would ultimately, you know, potentially improve their quality of life for the duration that they are there. And, you know, visitors don't suddenly stop seeing something that has been an integral part of the experience one way or the other for the last, you know, 40 or 50 years. And it's sort of a transition time. And I think that, um, to me, that seems logical and, and, and reasonable for, for both the animals and, and the protection of the resource. 
let me let me interject something here. I think it's important to note that the focus of this, the focus of the lawsuit, is to not uh, dictate to the Park Service what or how, I guess, to accomplish uh, what they uh, what they are required to do. We're not demanding they do anything specifically. So what Patty and Jessica are suggesting uh, are just um, obviously are, are common sense ideas. We hope through, uh, through this litigation that we, together with the Park Service and the state and our experts and, and, and others can uh, craft an appropriate remedy that addresses this this problem but uh, at this uh, I think as Patty mentioned at this particular stage that's so early in the litigation we don't really uh, we don't really have the 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 knowledge uh, and the information to really fine-tune a, a I guess a formal uh, solution, solution. Is, uh, you know, as exactly how to how to implement uh, a final program, and obviously that's going to be up to the Park Service how they uh, how they want to do that. Well, I'm I'm curious, and, and we're we're getting toward the end of our time here. But you know, earlier Jessica, you said that it's a complex issue, and I'm wondering if it really is a complex issue. Um, they're not native wildlife, they're having negative impacts on the, the seashore and the wildlife on the seashore and the, the, the vegetation on the seashore. Um, the Park Service itself admits that. Why, why has it come to a lawsuit? <laughs> uh, I, and, and how I certainly want to let you respond to that, but I, I think this goes back to the very beginning of our discussion, right, when we were talking about that balance between the Organic Act and the political interest, the, the, the need to protect and preserve, you know, versus the political interest. And the complexity sort of lies within um, visitor demand. I mean, all of the science is there, the common sense, the, the, the knowledge is there. But if visitors like to see them and visitors want to see them, the park, you know, I think has a hard time um, making the right decision and choice. I think there's a large segment of the local community that depends on the tourism that those horses have historically brought to the seashore. And so I think that if, if you're looking at the complexity of this problem, the science and the data and, and um, from an ecological perspective is there, but if you start thinking about the political interests that are potentially involved in the management of our public lands, I think that is where it, it becomes more complex. But, but I think if you look at the legal side of it and, and Hal can can answer this question as I'm sure he's researched it enough is that time and time again federal courts have ruled that the foremost mission of the park service is preservation of natural resources that the public's um, recreation and um, enjoyment comes secondary how oh sure I mean I, I mean yes uh, I, but I, I think your question is best put to the uh, Park Service itself. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, I, mean I, I, I agree with you completely. Uh, but I, and I can't answer that question. I mean, I, I mean, I think. I mean, I, like I said, I, I think that question 
is really best answered by the Park Service. I, I have no idea. I mean, I have no idea why we're here. I mean, that's. I mean, I mean, that's why we're here. I mean, I, 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 I can't answer that. I mean, I don't. We shouldn't be here. I mean, we we uh, sent two different letters uh, to uh, to the Park Service and the state. Uh, trying not to uh, not to take li- uh, legal action, uh, asking uh, that we explore other means other than litigation, and and uh, so on deaf ears. So I don't know why you know we're here because I mean I don't I don't know why we're here. I mean other than this is where we are to try to get resolution over this issue. Uh, um, it seems clear to me, but uh, it's obviously not clear as clear to the Park Service. So. I mean, your your question is a good one, but I can't answer it. I mean, I, um, I, that that really needs to be answered by by the Park Service. Now, I know it's in early days. Um, the, the lawsuit was just recently filed. Any sense of whether the the Park Service will settle this, or, or whether they're going to dig in and and take it to court? I have, no, I mean, no, I don't have a, I, not at this point. I don't have any feel for it. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us today. That was Hal Wright, uh, a lawyer who brought a lawsuit uh, against the Park Service and uh, how they're managing wild horses on Cumberland Island National Seashore. Patty Livingston, the president of both the Georgia Equine Rescue League and the Georgia Horse Council. And Jessica Hal Edwards, the executive director of Wild Cumberland. Folks, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. With the long Memorial Day weekend underway, here's hoping you find some time to get out and enjoy it in the National Park System. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.